let's uh, turn to Judges chapter 1 again, and uh, I'm going to read from verses uh, 12 down to the end to verse 36. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath-Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother, took it. And so he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Aaron. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went up with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And so the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went, into, went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahaloth. So the Canaanites dwelt with them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, 
or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Ahableb, Akzeb, Helba, Aphek, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwell among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley, and the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris, in Ailan, and in Shalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. There is God's inerrant and holy word, and may he bring his blessing to us. I know this is like one of those chapters where you have to read the genealogies, and you're thinking, what do all of these names and places have to do with uh, Israel and God's promises to them? But, uh, you know, these are written for our instruction Paul, if you remember, in 1 Corinthians 10, went through a litany of issues and sins that Israel had committed. And he says there that even though they were uh, given to Christ, and even though Christ provided for them, they still fell into these various sins. And he goes on there in 1 Corinthians 12 to say, these things were written for our instruction that we ourselves should be more faithful to the Lord and that we should be guarded in, in less that we think we are standing because when we have that kind of pride that says we would never be like that if we lived in those times, then we are doomed to fall in that pride. God brings down the proud. He exalts the humble in His grace. One of the things we're going to see as we move along in the book of Judges is that has a lot of these incidences, these brief tellings of small stories and intriguing characters. And over the course of 350 years of the history that Judges records here, we will see little vignettes into people's lives. And why are they there? Uh, in this opening chapter, we have three small incidental and seemingly disconnected accounts that, that pop up. And I want to suggest to you, as you look at them, one is, in, we read it last week, about Adone Bezek, who had his thumbs and his big toes cut off, and then he was executed. Uh, and that's all it says of him, uh, other than that he did the same thing to 70 other kings uh, in his rule and reign. And, and then we have this account of Caleb's daughter that pops up there, and it's just an incidental account, but she wanted wellsprings, and she says to her father, give them to me, and, and he does. Or as we get down a little further, we, we see Joseph, and mentioning the tribe of Joseph that takes Bethel. Uh, uh, 
why do these things pop up? And we're going to see as we go along more of these little little accounts, little stories come and meet us. And I want to suggest to you that though they are incidental and maybe in our mind seemingly disconnected, they are giving us insight into the Lord's plan and the Lord's desire for Israel in this land of promise that he has given to them. We went through the book of Joshua to to see how zealous God was to give Israel this land, to bless them with it. And and we concluded, Joshua, with with that uh, overarching promise that God had fulfilled what he said he would do in that general way in giving them the land. And now the book of Judges was Israel, uh, after Joshua had died, coming now and laying hold of the uh, land, of owning the promise, and of continuing that work. And there I connected to us that battle of the church in being the people of God in the wilderness of this world. And, and when you read a story, an account like Adonai Bezek, it's there because God wants us to see Israel's purpose as his people. Adonai Bezek was a very unjust, wicked tyrant who thought nothing of humiliating and torturing those whom he conquered. And even as he receives the same fate that he brought upon others with his thumbs and toes cut off before he was executed, God wanted Israel to bring a sense of justice against the wickedness that was in the land, of cleansing the land, of redeeming the land uh, to the Lord and to his kingdom. And God wanted Israel to carry on in establishing the rule of God uh, as a nation before all the nations of the world. And, and you come to this account of, of Caleb's daughter requesting springs of water for the land uh, as Othniel uh, takes over the cities and marries his, his niece. <laughs> you know, uh, those are strange things to us today. But, but that's, that's what unfolded here. And, and she, she asks for springs of water and Caleb gives more than she asks. And again, it's there because God wanted to see, uh, uh, help Israel to see that they, they just hadn't inherited a land but they had inherited a land that was flowing with milk and honey and that the Lord himself was ready to prosper and to bless them. Really all they had to do was ask. Ask for my help. See what I will do for you. And, and that's indeed how this, this book begins. It begins with them asking the Lord, who shall lead us? How shall we go forth? And the Lord is... Pleased to say, send Judah, and I will prosper that way. I will be with him. In many ways, it should remind us of what the Lord taught us about kingdom life for us as his church. What does he, what does he tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? You get to Matthew 7, about, about your relationship with God. He says, you, you know these words, ask. What does he say? It will be given to you. 
Ask God. He will give it. Seek. You will find. Knock. It will be open to you. In case you missed that, he says it again. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks, it's open to them. And, and it's showing to us that the Father's desire is to give to his people. Not just to show mercy, but to help them to live in that rich dependence upon his grace that is sufficient for them. He wants us to know he's not a miserly God. But as, as the illustration Jesus gives in Matthew 7, uh, that, that he's not trying to be uh, uh, not only miserly, not selfish or anything like that. He's trying to give the good things that he knows we need. Just like a father would give to his children the things that they need and not torment them by giving them the opposite of what they're asking for. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so he's, he's setting Israel up to understand what he wants for them and how willing he is to give to them. And then Joseph, uh, the tribe of Joseph, coming and taking the city of Bethel. What's so significant about that? Well, do remember that some 450 years earlier, that's where Jacob slept on a stone and had the vision of that ladder that was reaching from earth up into heaven and angels coming up and down and Jacob realizing that this was a vision of God's holy place on earth. And you go to Genesis uh, chapter 30, uh, chapter 28, chapter 28 and verse 15. Uh, Jacob realizing that this is a, a place where God is. And God speaking these words to Jacob. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Jacob realizes God is with him in this place. And Joseph, what, what do we read? At verse 22, Joseph went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. A repetition where God is saying, I haven't forgotten my promise to your father, to Jacob. Israel, I was, uh, I plan to bless you as I promised your, your patriarchal father. And by having this written down in the uh, beginnings of this book of Judges, again, God was wanting Israel to know those promises he made to them, and that Israel could look to them, those promises and, and own them. See what I will do for you. Ask, seek, and knock, and I will give those good gifts to you. Be a people who pursue righteousness. I will be with you. 
And so all of that is put here before us as Israel now seeks to own the various cities and villages of the land that they have inherited. And the question becomes, what went wrong? What went wrong? You know, when, when you read this opening chapter, it looks like they had uh, at least up until verse 26 a uh, measured success. And there were samples of successes happening with Judah, with Caleb, with Joseph. The Lord was ready to give Israel full dominion over the land. And, and this was seen with their early successes. And you see in verse 19, excuse me, in verse 22, that same statement for Judah and for Joseph, the Lord was with them. The Lord was helping them, was enabling them to accomplish these things. And, and again, what that is speaking to Israel is that the deficiency of their inability to take the land as they should have was not something deficient on God's part. He was both able and willing, even more desiring to enable uh, Israel to take on the land. And, And we see this initial spurring on of some of the tribes like Judah and Simeon. They they began in the right way. They were seeking God's direction and will. And Judah, that tribe that was to rule from which would come the king, is chosen to begin the conquest and the ownership of the land. And, and God was with them. Something that even Adonai Bezak in verse 7, he could recognize that God was with Judah and that God had done this very thing to him. God enabled the victory. Again, the Lord was with Judah, Emmanuel. And Caleb and Othniel, another sample of success. Caleb, who stood strong six decades earlier when Israel first should have taken the land, now is in the land and in the strength of the Lord and in the faithfulness of God, he's taking the cities that were given to him. Driving out, as you see even in verse 20, driving out the three sons of Anak. And you think, why why is that statement there? Well, who are the sons of Anak? Well, these are the giants of the land. Think a few hundred years after this of Goliath and Goliath's brothers, the descendants. Remember how much fear Goliath brought to the whole army of Israel. And how one young boy brought him down in the strength of the Lord. This this is all about God fulfilling his desires for his people. And, And in these early samples of success, we see Israel was striving to trust God, striving to trust Emmanuel. Things were working well at the very beginning, but again, the question is, what went wrong? What goes wrong? We, we have that same issue today, don't we? 
When we begin with fervency, our hearts are renewed in the Lord and we might begin tomorrow morning at the beginning of the week all renewed, refreshed in our hearts with a zeal to seek God's kingdom and to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness and to trust him to provide. And then by the end of the week, our our faith is diminished and something happens and we doubt God. Or our own zeal for God is gone. We start the week wanting to be a a believer who is engaged in those morning devotions. Knowing the difficulties and challenges and the hardships that will face us in our work week or in our school week. And so we say, well, one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure I get up every morning. And I devote that first 30 minutes of my day in, in, in reading the Bible and praying to God and just worshiping Him in my heart. And we start out on Monday and it works. And then Tuesday, I only have five minutes. Okay, well, I'll do that and go. And then Wednesday, it's gone. What happens? I, I, I don't believe I'm just describing some of the struggles I have. I think these are struggles that all of us have. What happens to our faithfulness to God? And this is something that begins to jump out in this first chapter and becomes more accentuated as we go along. The roots of failure are there. And and failure really is the only way to describe the refrain of this chapter because as you read, even in those first 26 verses, there are little seeds that in those successes that are happening, little seeds of roots of failure are already finding their way into those, those tribes that are mentioned. But you see the common refrain of verse 27 down to verse 36 is that neither Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, Benjamin... And it gets down to Dan, which I think when you, when you get down to the tribe of Dan in verse 34, is that they can't even come down out of the mountains and take the land. They're, they're just holed up there. They weren't, as it says there, the, the Amorites would not allow them to come down in the valley. That common refrain, they did not drive out the inhabitants or the Canaanites or the Amorites. And instead they decided it was a whole lot easier just to force them into labor, make them tributes to us, than to get them out. And and the failure of this began with Judah. You look at verse 19. The Lord was with Judah. They drove out the mountaineers. They were having this success In owning the land. But then you read the last line of verse 19. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland. Because they had chariots of iron. They had chariots of iron. Well in their minds. Now read into that. What, What were they saying? These chariots of iron are greater than the Lord. We can't do this. The enemies come up with something that matches the power and strength of our God. I'm, I'm just putting it in that, that character for you to see what happened. How, how could Judah be afraid of chariots? 
If they were but to reflect on what did God do to the entire army of chariots from Egypt that chased after them when they were in that exodus out of Egypt. What did God do to that entire army? Israel didn't have to do anything. God took out all those chariots in the Red Sea. What happened? Judah forgot their Lord. He was with them. God hadn't left Judah, but they forgot the Lord. In fact, that that epitaph is what you read when you get down to chapter 3, verse 7. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They were already beginning here to account that the force and strength of the nations around them were greater than their God. What they forgot wasn't that just that the Lord was with them and able to take them on. They forgot the deliverances that God had already accomplished for them. They forgot the way in which God, without Israel lifting a hand, was able to crush the enemy and provide for them and care for them. They forgot God. My friends, that's often what we do when we find ourselves Lacking that faithfulness and lacking it more and more as the week goes on or as the month goes on. We really forget what Christ has done for us. We might acknowledge, yes, the Lord is with me, but boy, you wouldn't believe the troubles we've had. You wouldn't believe the scorn and contempt the enemy holds us in. These things are just too great. They're too hard. Haven't you ever heard someone say that when their own personal afflictions, and these are Christians, uh, become great and they say, this is just too hard. We forget the Lord. We forget what he's done for us. What he has done to deliver us from the hands of the enemy and what he's done to provide for and care for us with his grace and his goodness. We, We forget. And what happens when we forget what the Lord has done for us? The the very first thing what happens is we stop praying. We stop praying. Now I know I'm probably speaking to the choir here tonight, but I, I have been urging prayer for our church so much. Why? Because that's the lifeline of God's people with their God. That's the way that has been opened to us by the blood of Jesus for us to come into the courts of God and to ask and to seek and to knock for that goodness of the Father to meet us in our needs. And we need to be a praying people. Judah forgot their God. Joseph compromised That's the second thing we see even in the successes that were had there. Joseph in verses 22 to 26. 
compromised. You know, I know when some people read verses 22 to 26, they think uh, of something similar that happened with Jericho under Joshua's leadership. A little bit. There's a little comparison there. But there's two grave wrong actions that Joseph commits here. When they come to this city of Luz, which is the city of Bethel, and they acquire it for the kingdom of God. They see spies coming out of the city. Uh, I'm sorry, the spies see a man coming out of the city and, and they ask him to show uh, the entrance to the city and, and if he does, they will show him mercy. Now that sounds sort of like Rahab, doesn't it? To some degree. But there's a difference. Rahab asked the spies for mercy. <laughs> and Rahab and her family became part of Israel. These spies show mercy to a man who has no intention of becoming a part of the kingdom of God. He's willing to betray his own people, but just so that he can be let go. And what does he end up doing? He ends up building the city in a different place. A city not dedicated to the Lord. It becomes another Hittite stronghold against Israel. Compromise. We know those words. 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked. Yet we put ourselves into that way. We think that we can compromise in, in some measure so that we can get along in this world in an easier way. But compromising, coming alongside of those who are not interested in the kingdom of God goes against God's will for us. It's an easy way out of a difficult situation. It's an easy way to escape even some measure of persecution. It's an easy way to try and simply get along with people so that we don't have trouble coming into our lives. But we're never called to live that way. Called to live as a people who are so kingdom-minded that we understand in this world we will have tribulation. That we understand as we live in this world that we have one who has gained a victory over this world. And that is our Lord and Savior. His goal is to subdue the world under his feet. Under the feet of his church. Not to come alongside of the world. And, and one last thing that we see. And these, these are these, these roots of failure. We see the tribes that could not overcome the nations, could not drive them out, instead had a measure of strength, so they set them under tribute. In other words, they made them slaves who would work for them and accomplish their work for them. The Canaanites and the Amorites, as we read twice in verse 27 and verse 36, they were determined to dwell in the land, and they no doubt put up a fierce fight when Israel came along to take over these cities and to drive them out. But even when the tribes of Israel became strong, and you see that in verse 28, when Israel was strong, 
instead of driving them out. They simply put them under tribute. And you get down to verse 35, the same thing again. Is when, uh, when the Amorites were determined to dwell in the, in the uh, mountains and they, they had Dan holed up in the mountains. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became great, they put them under tribute. They didn't drive them out. And we will see why they didn't drive them out. As we go on in this, in this book, is that they, in their inclination of making the Canaanites slaves, they became enamored with their gods. Instead of driving the Canaanites out and having a land free of idolatry, they saw what was around them and they leaned toward that idolatry. And those, my friends, are some of the roots of failure. When you look at your own struggles personally in striving to be faithful with the Lord and you wonder how you can start out strong and and then find yourself just losing speed and losing will and desire and losing uh, that faithfulness that you once aspired to. No, it's easy to lay blame at the feet of other things and other people. But these roots that we see in the life of Israel are roots that find themselves in, in our own lives and even in the life of the church. We forget what God has done for us. Remember what is said of the church at Ephesus. You can have a lot of things in order in your life and you can look like you're spiritually fit but you've lost what? Your your first love. The cross of Christ is not so precious. It can happen. We lack the luster of love for the Lord who has given his life for us. We forget our God. Compromise. Uh, I've got other things that are important. I'd say I'm really thankful for you students who are here. You don't know how many times over the course of ministry. It's not because I'm trying to to run a student's lives, but I know these are big times for you, but you don't realize how important resting in the Lord today is for you and your work in this coming week. But the busyness of our lives is such that we look and we say, I don't have time. I don't have time. And we think that by giving our time over to those things that are before us in this week on the Lord's Day, well, I've really got to study today because I've got so much happening this week. And I'm not going to prosper in those things if I don't take today and study. We think that's going to work. We compromise to accomplish things that the Lord just simply says, ask me, (laughs) I'll help you. (laughs) I know what's before you. I know what you're striving to do. I know the end of your study. I know the end of your work. I know the end of all of those things. Oh, that you would ask me. I would be so good to you.
and the things of the world. I think the end of it always comes back to this, that the greatest struggle that we have as God's people, the greatest struggle Israel has in the book of Judges is idolatry. The things of this world are attractive and much more interesting to our hearts and souls than the things of the kingdom of God. Israel struggled with that. The church struggles with it today. Solomon struggled with it. <laughs> you know, we can have... Let, let me just illustrate this with, with, with Solomon and, and what is written in, in Deuteronomy uh, uh, chapter 17. I was reading it this week and I just, just laughed at this. And it says, principles governing kings. And when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you see this is where Judges is leading us to the kingship uh, that God establishes over Israel. And, and so when you come into the land I'm given to you, you possess it and dwell in it. I will set a king over you like uh, the nations that are around you. And, and the Lord your God will choose a king for you. But he shall not, listen to what he shall not do. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. You shall not return that way again. Neither shall you multiply wives for yourself, lest your heart is turned away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And listen to these words. And it shall be when he sits on the throne. Now Solomon's the third king of Israel. When he sits on the throne, he shall write for himself a copy of this law in the book. Now one of the first duties the king had over Israel was to sit down and write out Deuteronomy 17. These are the things I should not do. <laughs> you know it. And yet, what were the things that Solomon did? He had so many horses, he had to build cities to hold all those horses. Why did he have so many horses? Because he put his trust in chariots. When his own father said, some trust in chariots, some in horses, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We forget. He had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Now those weren't really wives and concubines to the degree that we might think. They were all political, political relationships. Some were lustful relationships, but the vast majority were political. Solomon, the son of peace, thought to seek peace by alliances with nations. Compromise. But where did his heart go? And you can read it in 1 Kings. His heart went to the idols of his wives. The world captured his heart. And his devotion to the Lord was cut. And, and that's where we're going to be brought when you see these roots of failures and this incomplete conquest. What happened is the devotion to the Lord became half-hearted. They went against the known will of God. They forgot their Lord. They compromised. And they set their eyes on the idols of the land. And doesn't that describe our hearts at times too? Doesn't that describe our hearts when it comes to worship? 
to living out our worldview, to devotion to God, to even the simple ordering of our time with the Lord, that our devotion to God becomes half-hearted, and what disappears is the joy of being with our God. You know, Paul would write to Timothy as a young pastor, teaching him, but through him teaching the church the good confession that we're called to hold. I want you to hear these words. You, O man of God, flee these things. Flee what things? Discontentment, a desire to be rich, a snare that comes with the love of money that brings many foolish and harmful lusts and drowns men in destruction and perdition. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Pursue those things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. My friends, that's a daily task for us. When we see the roots of failure rising up in our lives, acknowledge them. Cry out to the Lord. Ask for that strength of the Spirit. Seek the Lord and He will deliver you. That's what happens for Israel. They find themselves bound into the idolatry of the world around them and they are brought down and all they can do is cry out to God, save me. And God is faithful to them every time. My friends, if you are struggling in your heart to follow and to serve the Lord in such faithfulness, cry out to him. Cry out to Jesus. He's the great deliverer of of his people and he will come to you and he will bring you back into that strong, right, full, wholehearted devotion to the Lord. He will renew you in his grace. That is his promise. And he will be faithful to that even when we find ourselves struggling in our faithfulness to him. Let us pray.